The greatest part of a writer's time is spent in reading in order to write. A man will turn over half a library to make one book. Samuel Johnson. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee Esses. And that opening quote only applies to nonfiction, right? Absolutely not. You've got to read books if you want to be a writer. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I see a lot of people going, well, I love to write, but I don't like reading. And I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. I get that it can feel like work, especially if you're brought up in the American school system. But I say it all the time, reading builds instincts. If nothing else, you learn to read like a reader and read like your target audience, as well as reading like a writer. So if you get nothing else from this episode, read. That is the four-letter word for this bonus episode. As an editor, when I read new authors, the problems have nothing to do with the content of their writing and everything to do with the fact I can tell they don't read often. They haven't developed those instincts for paragraphing and flow and just general sentence structure that applies to especially fictional books because there is a because there are different rules for fiction. And that's why I wanted to impress upon you that it's not just about doing your research, although research is incredibly important for whatever it is. Reading for entertainment is also just as important. Enjoy the process of storytelling, not only from the storyteller's point of view, but from the audience's point of view. This is really important. When it comes to reading to write, it really doesn't matter what you read. It's helpful if you read in the genre you want to write in, but that's not necessarily required. You can pick up those instincts in pretty much any kind of book. But honestly, you probably should enjoy reading whatever genre you write. In the same way, I will read plenty of Ted Decker and Lee Childs because I write action novels. You, as a fantasy author, if you never read Brandon Sanderson, would you really feel like you would be the same fantasy author? Absolutely not. I have learned so much from reading Brandon Sanderson about my own writing. This is kind of how I do it. I read it one time for enjoyment, just enjoying the story, enjoying everything about it. And then I read it again in the mindset of an author to find things that I like about it, things that I want to use in my own stories. And that's what we're going to be doing during the second half of this particular bonus episode. We're going to go over a book that we've both read. And so if you don't want any spoilers for Mistborn, then we'll let you know now's the time to turn it off. But not yet. We have a little more to talk about first. But how you read a book and how you analyze a book is important in how you understand the craft. Before I ever became an author, I was an avid reader. I have been all my life. I've written stories down, but not in the pursuit of becoming a better storyteller. It's a, oh, I want to get this out of my system. And that was pretty much it. Once I started reading with the mindset of an author, the world changed for me. If I could change one thing in the entire world, I would probably just set fire to all reading logs, at least in my area. We've conditioned people to think that reading is work. So many people I know 
don't read a book after high school unless it's a college textbook. They don't read for entertainment. People go, oh, well, I don't have time to read fiction. And then they'll watch three seasons of Friends on Netflix, which is great. Yes, please watch, enjoy whatever entertainment you want to enjoy, but you can't use time as an excuse. I have always loved to read, but I never read a single required book in high school. (laughs) Me neither. Okay, I read a couple of them, but not because the teacher wanted me to. (laughs) <laughs> I I gladly did like the accelerated reading things where you got to choose your book and you got points for it because I got to choose things like The Lord of the Rings and books that I actually wanted to read. I wasn't forced to read Lord of the Flies or 1984. Those were both books that I was required to read. I skimmed like a chapter and then Sparknotes everything else. Because I didn't want to have the joy of reading sucked out of my soul. And that's what it felt like it was doing. I always got particularly annoyed at having to document that I read something. It's like, well, you have to read for 20 minutes every night. And it's like, okay, I've run out of reading material because I'm faster than all my classmates. So, but I'm not allowed to read anything that's, you know, not on the list. Fortunately, my parents were really great about just providing me with whatever I wanted to read. Which means I read like Kuntz and King at a pretty early age, which might have a lot to do with my issues now. (laughs) So if you found yourself in high school not liking reading because it was required, give it another shot. Find a book that actually sounds interesting to you and try to read that. You may find that the reason you didn't like it is because you were required to read those books. And honestly, they're dull books in the first place. Yeah. If I were told, okay, you have to read either The Chronicles of Narnia or Little House on the Prairie, I probably would have been okay with it. But The Outsiders didn't really appeal to me. I wanted adventure. What? You didn't want to stay golden, Pony Boy? No. (laughs) The Outsiders (laughs) was actually one that I kind of enjoyed. Oh, good. I don't think I ended up finishing it. But, you know, there were some pretty good knife fights in there, so. Really? I might have to go back. (laughs) Anyway. Give reading another chance. You may find that you actually like it, especially if you like to write. And if you like to watch movies, how many times do you hear people say the movie was better? Books are better for a reason. So what books do I have to read before I die? Whatever you want. That's it. That's the list. Anything you want to read. While I appreciate reviewers and people putting these lists together saying these are the most epic lists of all of the books you need to read, grain of salt, all of that, because they may not be part of your target audience. Yes, if you're writing YA, it's probably a good idea to read the Divergent series and the Hunger Games series. But if you're writing fantasy or sci-fi... Maybe go with Sanderson or any of the Star Trek collections you'll find out there. Douglas Adams. Absolutely. If you are looking for recommendations, find somebody who is in your genre. If you're asking around on the forums online, go, hey, I'm an action author. What books do I need to read? Then people will give you the information you're looking for. Because if somebody suggests to me, oh, you need to read Pride and Prejudice, which I have, I just... Don't make me do it again or I might get violent. 
What about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? There's a small chance of that one. (laughs) But you're much better off, not only a writer, but as a human being, to have a to-be-read pile. Something that you can just pull from and go, okay, we're going to read this one. Something that's customized to you. Rather than, well, you have to read Moby Dick, the unabridged version, because whomever is recommending it hates you. Don't feel obliged to have books on your shelf that will impress other people. They don't matter. What you enjoy matters. And the reason why we suggest that you should read in your target audience and in your genre is because you will pick up things that apply specifically to that genre. And you're going to like it more. Yes. If you like to write in it, you're going to like to read in that genre. At least you should. So when you read in your genre, you can pick up on the tropes that are common. I just started to write a mystery story. I never would have written a mystery had I not been binging mysteries lately. Because there are very important tropes in there. You have to have some really good quality red herrings. You need to have a good reason for the main character to investigate themselves, whether it's their job or whether it's, you know, they're trying to clear themselves because they're the main suspect or whatever. There are things that I picked up reading mysteries that are really helping me write this story. And in the same and opposite vein, there are things that you've seen in those mysteries that annoy you that you don't want to repeat later. Like a book that's titled With Arsenic? but arsenic doesn't show up at all in the entire story? As the poison master of our writing guild, I disapprove of this message. (laughs) It was, other than that, a mostly good cozy mystery series. It's called A Geek Girl's Guide to Murder. That's the first one. The second one is A Geek Girl's Guide to Arsenic, but it wasn't arsenic. (laughs) That's like my biggest problem with the whole thing. Otherwise, good cozy mystery. If you like cozy mysteries, I recommend it, despite my issue. (laughs) Just call it a Geek Girl's Guide to Belladonna and you'll be good. Or just simply Geek Girl's Guide to Poison. You you don't need to get specific in the title. You don't need to give anything away. But you can't call it arsenic when you don't even say arsenic anywhere in the story. Anyway, that's a little (laughs) tangent there. (laughs) Which we get to do on bonus episodes. You also... If you read enough and you buy the books or look at the books, rent the books, whatever, you start to see patterns in cover designs that will help you build a good cover for the genre. And pick up your favorite target audience, which we'll be talking about very soon in our marketing series, which is coming in July. Another reason why you should be reading is when you first start off writing, you might not recognize what is good writing. When you start reading more of the genre, you start recognizing not only I really like this writing, but I know why I like this writing. It's also helpful to expand the kind of genres you read normally. If you prefer fantasy, you may need to read an action or a mystery every once in a while so you can bring elements of those other genres into the fantasy genre and write a fantasy mystery. That might be really interesting. But if you only read epic fantasy where they're going on a hero's journey, you won't pick up instincts for other types of plot lines. So I have to ask, when was the last time you just closed a book and stared at a wall? Do you remember what the line was? 
Oh, I mean, the line that comes to mind right now is Mistborn, there's always another secret, which just in the moment, it's just a really off the wall, random statement. But reading it again for me, I hit that line and I'm like, that just so works for that character. (laughs) It is so him. I think for me, there was a Lee Child book I read relatively recently where the bad guy said, get the potato peeler. (laughs) Yes, it has that kind of a giggly thing now, but he'd been threatening this like eight-year-old girl to do terrible things to her with a potato peeler. And at the end combat climax, the good guy has come to screw with the bad guy's plan. And he's like, okay, well, I've got the little girl now. So he tells one of his minions, go get the potato peeler. Because of the way they built to that line, it was a great line. It's such a stupid, off-the-wall, random thing outside of the book, but it was just perfect for that moment. So why do you point out specific lines for characters? I don't think before I started studying the craft, I would have given that line any more thought. I wouldn't have been able to admire how they built the book to that moment. It would have been like, okay, now this is the payoff of that information. I would have understood that. But now I can understand in my own writing, those little lines that you drop, especially from the villain, if you use them at the end, even if they would be difficult for an actor to deliver, they're still great lines. I feel very much the same about the line from Mistborn that I mentioned, there's always another secret. It's near the beginning of the book, and it kind of defines how the rest of the book goes, especially in regards to that character that says it. With him, there truly is always another secret. And it goes beyond even, spoiler, his death. So it's it's just a very fascinating thing to see this one little, what appeared to be a throwaway line at the beginning be so defining. I don't want to spit on cinema by saying, oh, you should be reading. Because there are stories in cinema as well as in books. It's a different medium. You can have cake and ice cream at the same time. You can love them both. No, watching TVs and movies won't help you build instincts for paragraphing or sentencing but it will help you build instincts for story. And really, any good book boils down to the story. If the story is good, people will excuse a lot of problems. I want to give a quick shout out to book reviewers. We love you. If you don't know where to begin your reading journey, then find a reviewer of your genre in the same way you would with movies. If somebody agrees with all the Oscar nominations, I'm probably not going to agree with a lot of that movie reviewer's ideas. But if they call all of the good box office movies and they said Avengers is going to be awesome, I'm probably going to be more in line with them. So thank you for all the book reviewers out there. If you can't find one, consider talking to your local library. They have a lot of book clubs, that kind of thing. And if not, you can help get one started. And your librarian will have a thousand books to recommend. If you say, oh, I I read one book in middle school. It was something, the books of Narnia. Okay, we have a whole section for you. It's right over here. And they can get you started. 
All right, let's get into how to read a book as a writer. For those of you who want to read Mistborn, who don't want spoilers, this is the time that you can turn it off. Right, selfishly, we'll see you next time. But for the rest of you, we are talking about Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn the book. Not necessarily the series, because I haven't read the entire series yet, but I'm working on it. It's technically the final empire in the Mistborn series, but most people just call it Mistborn. So we have both read the book. Obviously, she's read the book because it's by Sanderson. I read it last winter. At my recommendation and constant prodding. Coercion. I think coercion is the word you're looking for. Yes. (laughs) And we're going to analyze both the things we enjoyed about the book and the things that we didn't quite like, that didn't quite resonate with us. And so as you're listening to these questions, you can ask yourself these questions about whatever the latest book is that you've read. What do you like? What you don't like? So here we go. What is your favorite scene in the book? Oh, oh dear. Montage 20 minutes later. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, I like this scene and this scene and this scene when Kel- like so when Kelsier shows up and he kicks everybody's butt. And then I like the scene with Ellen when they start bantering about taking his place and then the book. And I like... (laughs) And now we have a summary of the book. (laughs) This is really hard for me to choose because I just like the whole book. But one of my favorite scenes has to be the first ball that Vin goes to. Because you have this character who is such a dichotomy of innocence, yet long-time street rat. So the main character is Vin, and she's playing the part of a noblewoman going to a ball in the city for the first time. And she's so enamored by everything, by the beautiful gowns, the wonderful stained glass windows, and you kind of see a new side of her that is just caught up in the wonder of everything. But she also is there to basically rob people, (laughs) rob all of these people blind. But it's really kind of the start of seeing her change into a stronger person, not the beat down street rat that was controlled all the time, but starting to grow into something different, who she really is. It's just the beginning of that. And it's, it's so beautiful. I love the descriptions. Yeah, that scene did a really good job of explaining the entire room without making it feel like you're getting a Leviticus-style explanation of the room. (laughs) Yes. Because the character was so enamored with it. Oh, this. Oh, oh, and this. It was a refreshing way to convey this kind of scene-setting information for somebody who is woefully bereft in the whole scene-setting department. (laughs) Because it was character-driven, it was a really well-executed moment. Yes. Probably my favorite scene, and I've been thinking about this for a while. There are a lot of good just like moments. Uh Uh-huh. But as far as the whole scene, there is one scene when the mentor character, Kelsier, is convincing the normal populace to join his cause. And because there's magic, there are people who can build emotions in groups. And which emotions were being built and not were done by somebody else. So the main character is watching through a hole in the wall. And one of the characters says, okay, release all the barmaids with the green dresses. 
and therefore they're setting the mood of the crowd to reflect the mentor character's speech with their magic. They're subtly manipulating magic, and it takes like, what, eight or nine people Mm -hmm. to execute this plan to use magic to convince people to do a thing. And it was just a very well-thought-out moment, and I always like it when the whole group works together and everyone has their own different facet in what's going on. That's one thing that I love about the whole book and really the whole series is that it relies on the whole crew. Every member of the crew has a very specific job and they are all very useful in how they work it. And that character that was the kind of the lead in doing the manipulation, Breeze, by far one of my favorite characters in the series. <laughs> he is so much fun. Yeah, he is. He's got a lot of almost the Han Solo swagger thing going, but like in an old fogey. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the main character's a teenager, so everyone's an old fogey, but... So was there a scene in there that you think didn't work, that you didn't like as much? You're going to give me a hard time for this. But at the very end, the nobleman, will-they-won't-they boyfriend character, Ellen, rushes in and hugs her. And she's just had this exhaustive fight with the ruler of the world. And he hugs her and goes, I didn't leave you. And she goes, oh, you're the first person who hasn't left me before. Da, da, da. And it's like, it felt very out of the blue. <laughs> I know that emotionally I'm not in tune to that part of her, but it could have been set up better. The way it came across to me was a, oh, yeah, well, they need to be in love. Uh, here. Da! Jazz hands. You know, Which I... Which is kind of how my love scenes go, but that's okay. I can't fault you for that one. <laughs> it presented like that, that actually does make a lot of sense. <laughs> I would probably end up saying the same thing. The buildup with the Vin and Ellen relationship was very good, I thought. But the end, I do agree, felt a little rushed. And I have some issues with their relationship in the next couple of books. It gets a little frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So you already mentioned you like Breeze. Is he your favorite character? No. Oh, who is? Hmm. Hmm. Honestly, I think my favorite character is Sazed. You took mine. <laughs> if not him, then Ham. So Ham is the thug. He can take a hit. He's the fighter, built, gruff guy. In appearance only. <laughs> he is quite the philosopher. And it is amazing to see that kind of characteristic because Brandon Sanderson didn't do your stereotypical beefy, angry, gruff, stupid guy. But this really thoughtful, takes time to think about things before he just jumps in and fights people, despite that being his job. I like the philosopher characters, but I will have to go with Sazed because he's a keeper of knowledge. And even though he's a servant, he does a great job of leading, which sounds a little contradictory, but because he's a keeper of mostly religions, He's often talking with the other characters, trying to find a religion that suits them in the same way a Harry Potter nerd might try to get someone who is completely ignorant to figure out which house they're in. He's bringing information about nuance in the world, just making it bigger in a way that I really appreciate in the world building. And I think he was executed in a very well-written way. 
So how will you use what you learned from Sazed in your own writing? Are you asking me as a podcaster or as an editor? Both. (laughs) I feel like I've been given permission to write a character whose goal is basically as a sounding board. He didn't have as much of a personal goal as compared to he just wanted to serve and serve well. To have no personal motivation beyond helping the team, it's always felt very convenient in my own writing. It's like, okay, this is what the character is there for, it's just as a sounding board. Which can happen, but I don't like doing that to my characters. But when his goal is conveying information, it's a lot easier to get behind the character. What about you? It's a very good reminder to step away from stereotypical mental physical attributes. You can have a smart, strong character. This isn't D&D. You don't have to min-max. You can have a good balance between the two. And Ham is a very good representation of a well-balanced character that I would like to use some of how he was made and what makes him him for another character. Not necessarily the philosophical, always asking weird questions, (laughs) but that idea where you can have this person who's a good fighter and smart, or somebody who is really smart, who also just happens to be a good fighter. And how he sees himself, I think, would be an interesting question to ask, a philosophical question. Okay, what's a character that didn't work for you? The character that didn't really work for me was Yeadon. He was the one to kind of hire Kelsier's crew that led them on the journey to defeating the Lord Ruler. But his character didn't make a lot of sense. It felt more convenient than developed especially when he flipped the script of being really suspicious of Kelsier and his motivations to suddenly full-on believing him enough to lead an army to destruction. You might not like me very much, but I didn't much care for Spook. You know? To me, he felt like an excuse for a love triangle that, at least in the first book, didn't really get resolved. It didn't work for me. Because he's constantly admiring the main character who's just kind of oblivious to everything. But I liked the accent. I liked the history. I didn't like the role he played in the story. I'm hoping that'll, in later books, make more sense. She's making faces at me now. Spoiler for the future books. He does play a much larger, more important part. Good, because it was kind of useless in this one. Yeah. I think his purpose in the first one is to help show how he develops and a little bit of the motivations for what happens later. But I do agree. In the first book, it's just kind of like, okay, there's this weird, awkward teenager. Why is he here? Yeah. I get that. It gets better. (laughs) Yay. Sanderson Avalanche. I mean, that's one thing with Sanderson's writing is that there are sometimes things at the beginning in like the first book that just don't quite work, but they develop into something much better later on, much stronger. It's good to identify what about those characters, what about those scenes or whatever that you don't like, so you can avoid that in your writing, but keep going with it to see if something changes. Does that character develop? Do they improve? Do they fall into a path of villainy because of what happened and what you didn't like? And I think that is one of those lessons we as writers can learn 
is, okay, the first book is out. Nobody liked this character. Do we just kind of Jar Jar Binks it where we throw him in a desert and pretend like he never existed? Or do we kind of spook the name of this character in this book? It's where, okay, we recognize it didn't work. Let's do something with it to make it look like we were doing something important all along. So what was your favorite element of storytelling in the Mistborn book? I'm glad you asked me first because I'm taking yours. I like the magic system. I love seeing superpowers used in interesting ways. And a lot of the magic system in this is more superpower based because you get to do one thing and you can do that one thing in lots of different ways. You can push a sword out of the way or drop a coin on the ground and then catapult yourself into the air by pushing metal. Cool. I thought it was a very well thought out system. What is your favorite element in the storytelling? Going back to my favorite quote, there's always another secret. I love how the story is slowly revealed. It's not like we get a ton of backstory and exposition at the beginning of the book. It is filtered in throughout. So there are reasons why we want to keep reading. It's questions that keep us going. What are the pits of Hathsin? Why was Kelsier there? What happened with Mare? Like these things that we don't get answers to right away that just keep us moving along in addition to the normal standard plot. It's just a very good way of presenting history without boring the readers. Do you have an element that you really dislike? <sighs> Not really. <laughs> I say this probably a little hypocritically, but there are times in the book where Sanderson goes into an excess of detail. I suffer from that problem as well, <laughs> but that's one reason when I read books, I see those points and I see that it bothers me a little when they go on a little too long and it helps me recognize my own faults and try to improve them so I don't annoy the readers the way I get annoyed. You're recognizing where that stopping point is? Yes. Okay, this is kind of a broken record for me, but I didn't like the prologue. Oh, you didn't like the burning of Lord Trusting's house? I enjoyed that. I didn't like that it was from like a random stranger's point of view. I kept like waiting for him to come back. And then he came back three quarters of the way through after a fight going, thumbs up, all of our people are dead, but yay. And then just disappeared again. <laughs> if it were from Kelsier's point of view, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Even from Lord Tresting's point of view. Yeah, that would have been great because I mean, I wouldn't expect him to come back at that point because he's on fire. But this random guy, whom I don't even remember his name, he was just that obscure, sees a stranger come, and we don't know who the stranger is, because it's the prologue, and I haven't read any of Sanderson's work before. And the stranger says, rich people are bad, burn the house down, and then does, and then, like, wanders off into the night. It's like, I have no idea what just happened, and as I eventually figured out who that stranger was, I didn't get why Trusting's estate was even part of the conversation. As someone who has read it a couple of times and read Brandon Sanderson's other books as well, this is very common for him. Tangents that don't really resolve. The purpose of this particular prologue was to set the stage for Kelsier's motivations and his kind of wanton disregard for noble life. It helps you see why he takes such extreme action later in the story. But you don't see that your first read through. 
because you just read it and you kind of go, okay, well, an entire you know mansion full of people are dead. Now what? <laughs> yeah, I didn't connect that to the rest of the story until the battle just after the major failure. It's one of those things that you see in the reread. And Sanderson does this quite often where the reread makes more sense. His Stormlight Archive series does this. His prologue, it took me like the third or fourth reread to finally connect the prologue to the rest of the story, The Way of Kings, because it was so off the wall. It happened in a time period that in the current series time period has basically become half forgotten religious beliefs. But in the third book, you start to actually meet those characters again, and it starts to finally make sense. Oh, good. So long as it makes it worth it eventually. (laughs) Yeah. But I fully get why you don't think that works. And I do agree with you, especially for people reading it for the first time. Yeah. (laughs) I can't argue. (laughs) I can give an explanation, but no, you're right. (laughs) Do you have a favorite line? I mean, I already shared mine. There's always another secret. Oh, they had leaders, Master Kelsier, Sazed said. Dead ones, true, but leaders nonetheless. Some men would say that their devotion didn't make sense, Kelsier said. The loss of the Valen leaders should have broken the people, not made them more determined to keep going. Sazed shook his head. Men are more resilient than that, I think. Our belief is often strongest when it should be weakest. That is the nature of hope. That moment for me was like a light bulb going off. It clued me into the mentor character's plan so that I could follow where he was going and what we were leading up to without actually saying it blatantly outright. Okay, martyrdom it is. We need to have somebody dead so that we can defeat the final empire. I'm cool doing that. Y'all just have to keep fighting. Cool? All right. We didn't need to have that moment, but instead this... Tell me about martyrs of the past conversation in just a very intimate, quiet moment. There was nothing grandiose about revealing his plan. And I really liked making something so large, small. I think it was really well done. Agreed. There are a few times where Sazed is talking about religions that it helps foreshadow to different events and future possibilities. Was there a line you didn't like? Are you allowed to say? I can't think of any. I mean, there are some in there that don't hit quite as well, but I can't really say this one particular line I thought was weird. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat where I didn't spend time thinking about the lines that didn't land well. There are a couple of things in my particular version of the book where I had to stop Put the book down and go, okay, I'm going to go make sure my understanding of the word is his understanding of the word because he's using it in a very strange way or whatever. Things that he did in his writing that made me double check myself and therefore put the book down. So those might have been weaker lines, but none of them particularly come to mind right now. What is one thing that you would want to change in the book? I think I would have enjoyed seeing more characters' points of view. This is my writing style coming out in my review of the book, but you only saw a couple of points of view, and it was mostly the person who had no clue what was going on. I didn't get a chance to see necessarily how the whole conspiracy was put together besides the snippets she picked up. 
I didn't get a chance to see a lot of the good guys and their team, their action. It's just the aftermath of whatever it is that they did because that's all she saw. I would like to have seen Ham just turn somebody into a goo because it would have been cool. And, you know, have him wonder about why bones are designed how they are as he's breaking them. I think I would change Marsh. I would make him more involved in the story. We see little bits of him, but we don't really get to know him or his character. But I feel that would be more important, knowing what I know about the next two books. So just seeing him a little more, involving him a little more? Yeah. And get a feel for who his character really is. I would like to have seen a little more Ellen and Dad moments. I hate Strathventure. He's great. Oh, you'll love him. Like, villain-wise, he's really good in the next couple of books. Yeah, he's already sort of setting up to be in Where I Am in Well of Ascension. He's mostly going that, well, yeah, my son's leading the town, so let's all starve him out and kill him all. Why not? The end of this one, he did the, uh, you watch over the household. I'm going, bye! (laughs) (laughs) So, as we've gone through this, the reason why we're talking about things we like and didn't like is because as writers identifying those differences can help us improve things in our story. We didn't like the lack of presence of a certain character, so that's something we can change in our own writing. We really liked this one particular setup, this line that kind of made the light bulb go off for the character's plans. That's something we can try to incorporate ourselves. It's not plagiarism because we're not using those words. We're just taking the idea, the base of it, and using it to make our writing better. And I want to emphasize we're looking at both the things we like and the things that we would change. So when you're analyzing a book, don't just go, oh, they're fantastic in every way, and there's nothing that you dislike about it, because there should be things that you enjoy and things that you don't, because they aren't you, and they aren't perfect. But it may be that you find out that That character has a plan four books down. Sure, great. They did something with the information of people didn't receive this character well. You can ask yourself these questions about any book you like or dislike, any book that you've read, and ask yourself while you're reading as well as after you've read. Ask about your favorite scene and a scene that didn't work. A favorite character and a character that didn't work. A favorite element in the storytelling and maybe an element that didn't work. And a favorite line, or a line that you just really didn't like. And how would you fix this problem? If it were your book, how would you solve the problem? Asking yourself these questions helps you ponder what it means to be a good author and what it means to be an author that you would enjoy. Because these answers will not be the same for Lee as they would be for me as they would be for my grandmother. And it's all about making sure that you like what you write. Because if you don't like what you write, your audience won't either. So remember, write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. <laughs>